finished the very last vocal January the 6th, 2020. The very last vocal. And we just couldn't believe what was getting ready to transpire, you know. But it did, and we went through it, and we're still going through it, but it's getting better. That's what I'm happy about. Did you have plans to tour on the record initially? We were going to do some touring, but I mean, how can you tour when the world is so screwed up? You know, we're going through so many things here in the world. We're going through, we're going through everything. I mean, we're going through death. Everywhere, everywhere you looked, it was death. You know, along with losing my great friend Mary Wilson, I lost my great friend Edna Wright, lead singer of the Honeycombs. You know, we just lost uh, Sarah Dash from LaBelle. You know, I mean, we lost one of the old uh, Lillian Ford, who was one of the Raylettes with me, with Ray Charles. And it's just been a year of just total loss, you know, a year and a half almost of loss, 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 loss. We're going into almost the second year of this, you know. Yeah. How do you tend to cope with loss, and does music play a role in that for you? Music, absolutely. <laughs> music will fix everything. And when you sing it and you're involved in it, it you know, it just takes away the, 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 the ugliness of the world. Music does. It always has for me. As a, a kid growing up, you know, a youngster, a young African-American in America, growing up in the music industry, it always took away the ugliness of the world, you know. And which we all saw some of. I know, obviously, you, you've gone through your own struggles over the last several years. What role did music play in your own recovery? Uh, everything. Uh, absolutely everything. Because you can always... I never play my music here at home. I never play the music that uh, I've recorded over the years. Never. I very seldom, unless I'm rehearsing, getting ready for a show. Is the only time I'll play my own music in my home. Isn't that weird? But a lot, I know a lot of singers that, do, that you know, that does the same thing. They don't play their music in their home. They play, they play other people that they uh, aspire to be like, you know, like I'll play uh, Della Reese, who is my godmother, or I'll play Sarah Vaughn or um, Ella Fitzgerald and those women, you know, I, I'll play them, you know, I'll play Ashford and Simpson. <laughs> I'll play I'll play my great friend's record, but I, I don't play mine, which also inspires me. And that's what helped me to get better when I was going through what I was going through in the hospital. I had music, music, music. Those five months I was in the hospital, all I had was music. And I had a, a set list that they would play every day for me. And I just played that music every day, you know, listened to that music every day. I had several tapes. My son is in, uh, in radio, so he made several tapes for me. And he said, Mom, I'm going to make tapes of all the stuff you love. Because I love the OJs. I love the stylistics. I love all of those guys. You know, I love the Isley Brothers. I love these guys. I like uh, Beethoven. I like Bach. I like all of uh, all genres of music I love. I love country. It's certain things in country. I loved Ray Charles' country album that he did so many years ago. Because we really sat down and talked about that record. When I was working with him, I asked him, why did he... You know, I would ask him, I'd ask questions. He, I know he would be sick of me asking questions because I'd always ask questions. Why did you do that? He said, because I like the stories, you know. Now listen to this. What, what, story did, what, what story does this tell you, Sister Mary? And I would have to tell him what, you know, what, what, what it sounds like to me, you know. He said, well, you, you love this type of music because, you know, it tells stories. And, and, and uh, they tell wonderful stories of love and loss, of happiness, of sadness. That's why I love country music. But I love all type, all genres of music. I love Beyonce. I love Jay-Z. I love all, all types of music. 
So it played a big part in my recovery. I was talking to a friend about this the other day. Um, you know, she's going through a rough time. Everybody's going through a rough time, but you know, mm. she's dealing with some depression, as I'm sure a lot of people oh. are. And it was a conversation around sad music and what it is that draws us to sad music and sad themes when we're going through a difficult time. Do you find that music with sad subject matter can be healing? No, I don't like sad subject matter. I mean, why play sad music when you can play something happy and make you feel better? That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, that, that has never made sense. Well, you know, I played sad day. I said, why? Play, play somebody else, something that's going to uplift you and make you feel up. You, you play something sad, and it drags you down, drags you down further than... T- this is me. This is just to me. Some people may like playing sad music. I don't particularly like to play sad music around my house. I don't. You know, there's an album that uh, Brown Isley did with, uh, with Burt Baccarat. You know, all of these great songs, but they're so slow, and they sound great. But I said, oh, I can't play this during the day. Maybe I could play it early in the morning, but not do it the day <laughs> or before you get ready to go to bed because it's kind of kind of dreary and sad. You want to play something that's going to make you fill up, you know. I mean, I was listening to a few of my songs because I was rehearsing, and I was listening to uh, Beautiful Scars, you know. Well, that pertained to what I went through. Have you heard the record? When Diane wrote that for me, we were sitting in the studio, and um, so I was always sitting next to Lou and next to the other producer, Terry Young. So we were just sitting talking and pulling up something we wanted to listen back to from the day before. Lou looked at me. He said, you know what? Maybe I need to call Diane. I said, Diane who? He says, Diane Warren. I said, oh. I said, how cool. So he just pulls out his, you know, his daddy, his, his daddy little phone and calls Diane. Hey, Diane, I'm sitting here with Mary Clayton. So what are you doing sitting with Mary Clayton? He said, we're doing an album. Doing an album? Oh, God. Mary's doing an album? He said, yes, and we need something really wonderful. So I left out. I left out to go back to the, uh, to get some tea or some coffee, just to get out of the room and to get some fresh air. And Lou told her what had happened. She, she said, well, Diane, do you know what happened to Mary? She said, I know some, but I don't know. So Lou told her what had happened, and she said, well, look, I'll have something to you in two weeks. In a couple of weeks, I'll, I'll have something for Mary. And she pinned Beautiful Scars, which I thought was incredible, because everything that she pinned is what happened to me. Everything through my whole experience. She pinned my entire experience, really. And a lot of it is my career. Some of, some of it is my career. Some of it is my, my, my present. Some of it is my past. You know what I mean? As an artist. So, you, you know, when, when I play that song, I can barely get through that song to sing that song because it just breaks me up, you know. So I really have to be thinking about something else totally. And when I did the Jimmy Kimmel Live show, I said, oh, my God. I said a prayer. I said, oh, God, just strengthen me to be able to get through this song for this show. And God strengthened me, and I was able to get through to get through that song. But, man, that song right there, even uh, Deliverance. And a lot of those songs are just so wonderful, but they all apply to my life at this portion, at this time in my life. And I just love the project. It's emotionally difficult does it transport you back to the incident no it doesn't when i go through something i go through it i don't stay in it i've been like that all of my life when you go through something i was always taught if god takes you through it don't keep referring back to it don't don't stay in it you know just don't wallow in it to think about 
uh, be, be transported back to what happened, that means that I would stay in it. I, don't, I, I, I prefer not to stay in it, so I really don't think about what, what happened. Every day of my life, I can look at, you know, I can look at myself and know what had transpired, but it doesn't mean I have to wallow in it. You know what I mean? What is it that's so difficult about that song or, or that's, so, that's so emotional about that song? Because it was a part of my life that, that I went through, something that, something that you go through. I went through it. I didn't stay in it. When you go through something, you go through it and you get out of it. But it touches my soul and it touches my spirit to sing I've been on the battlefield of life and I've been through it. But I just had to go through that to get through this, meaning the time that I'm in now. You know, every hurt I've endured, every cut, every bruise, I wear it proud like a badge. I wear it like a tattoo. What lyrics? I mean, you can't sing any better lyrics than that. You can't. You just can't. <laughs> the line that jumped out to me in particular in that song is that you wouldn't change a single thing, which is, I think... Even even the bad. Yeah. Because everything that made me break made me who I am. And it did, because right now, everything that made me break in that situation just broke me up, just tore me apart, which was the accident. It made me who I am. It made me the strong... I was always a strong woman, but it made me stronger, to be able to go through that and come out on the other side, shining like gold. What's your sense of how you're different having been through that? I don't think that I'm different. I think that I'm stronger. I don't, I don't think, I, I'm always Mary. I've always been Mary. I, I am. I've always been Miss, Miss Mary. I've always been that little girl, you know, that little, uh, that grew up, and she grew up a singer, that pastor's daughter, and Eva, Eva and, and Alvin's baby girl. I've always been that. I will never, ever be anything else but that. A lot of people ask me the same thing. Well, what did you change? You know, no. I'm a little more patient than I was before. You know, going through what I went through, it will make you patient, honey, because you have to be patient. You have to be patient because it took a lot for me to get through what I went through. But God gave me the grace to go through it. And I'm thankful about that. And you never doubted for a moment that you would be singing again or putting out another record? Well, I did. I never doubted. I never doubted that I would be singing again. But I didn't know that I would be putting out a new record. <laughs> that was that was the the affectionately known as Uncle Lou. That was Uncle Lou's idea. I mean, we talked. To, we had spoke about it. And he, after I, he was so encouraging my whole time um, in the hospital. We talked two or three times a day, you know, while I was in the hospital and while I was going through recovery and while I was going through therapy. When I was, I'd speak to him two or three times a day, Mary, you all right? How you feel? So I'm feeling fine, Uncle Lou. You need anything? You know, I think I'm fine, Uncle Lou. You're not in any pain, are you? That was the three things he would ask. I said, no, Lou, I'm not in any pain. He said, well, if you need anything or anything's going on, you call me and let me know. I said, okay, I will. So he said, you know, Mary. You know you got to get well, don't you? I say, yeah, I'm going to try. He said, because you know you have to sing again. So to myself, I'm saying, has he lost his mind? I have two amputated legs. And the Uncle Lou is saying, you know, you've got to sing again. And then what runs through your mind is, how am I going to sing? Am I going to sit and sing? Am I going to stand and sing in prosthetics? If I sing, how am I going to do this? And then I remember what my father told me, so many, and, and instilled in me as a kid. God will make a way. He never gives you more than you can handle, and he'll always give you a way of escape to get through it 
and whatever he needs you to do in life, he will make a way for you to do it. See, I could have been gone in the accident. I didn't go in the accident. So that right there told me something. And what it told me, Brian, was God wasn't finished. My destiny wasn't finished yet. I wasn't finished with my destiny. I still had someone. There's someone. There's a lot of someones I still need to touch in this earth before I leave here. When Lou decided, you know what? What about, you think you want to sing again? You want to think you want to do a record? I said, well, I know one thing. If and when I do anything, I want to say thank you to my Lord for giving me my life back again. I will not sing anything until I, until I give my gift back to him in thanksgiving as an honorable thanks to him for giving my life back. So Lou said, well, that's all I need to hear. I'll call you back in 20 minutes. That's infamous Lou at the line. Call you back in 20 minutes. And in that 20 minutes, he has done everything. He has spoken to the writer. He's spoken to the studio. He's done everything in those 20 minutes. Whatever the situation is, it's going to be set in stone by the time he calls you back. He kept saying, it kept saying to me, you know, he got to get well. He said that for five months that I was in the hospital. And I said, oh, my God. I just knew. That was like a mantra to him. Every day he would speak to me. Oh, well, Mayor, how are you doing today? I said, I'm doing pretty good, Uncle Will. Did you, what do you have for breakfast? And he'd go through the pleasantries. And he'd say, well, <laughs> I said, oh, my God, here he goes. Uh, are you any pain? No, I'm not in any pain, Uncle Lou. He says, um, "Well, you're married. You gotta get well now, cause you got you, you know, you gotta sing. You gotta sing again." And I'm, I'm, what he's saying, I'm mouthing to myself, "You gotta sing again," you know. So I, so about the about the five, the fifth month, I said, and I'm, I just gotten out of the hospital five months later. We were speaking one day, and he's, I said, "Well, you know what? I'm just gonna relinquish this and." Whatever you think I need to do, why don't we just go about the business of doing it? He said, "Okay." He said, "We have to call Terry. Let's just call Terry and get some songs together, and we're gonna we're gonna go in the studio." <laughs> I said, "What?" He said, oh, "Yeah, we're gonna go. He told you you need to sing again." But what he was doing with all of that, he was doing for months and months and months and months and months. He was giving me something to look forward to. He was giving me something, you know, like you're a singer, you're an actress. This is what you do, you know. So, you know, I was saying, okay. Okay, I'm, I guess I'm going to sing again. So I, was, I told my family, I said, well, Louis determined that you're going to sing again. And I said, well, I guess I'm going to sing again. Because my first, my first thought was when my doctors came in my room after I'd come out of uh, intensive care, the first thing they said to me, you know, they never come in one or two doctors. They come in five or six doctors marching behind each other. I said, oh, my God, what is going on now? So they came in and they said to me, Ms. Clayton, we, we'd like to speak to you. I said, yes. They said, well, you know, we've got some, some news to tell. You also okay. And my family was there. There was a nurse at the head of my bed, and she didn't think I saw this big needle she had behind her back, but I saw everything. And um, because I guess they thought if I fell out, she would give me some kind of sedation. And I guess that's what she was there for. So when uh, he says, well, we had to make some harsh decision. He put his hands on my shoulder. Anytime a doctor's put his hands on your shoulder, he's got some news. Well, you don't want to hear the words harsh, harsh no, decision no, from a doctor. No, no. So he says, we had to make some really harsh decisions, Miss Clayton. And we just wanted to tell you that we had to amputate both of your legs from the knee down. And my sister started to, I saw tears coming down her eyes, you know. And I looked at the doctor. I said, well, they still have prosthetics, don't they? He said, yeah. I said, but can I ask you a question? He says, yes. I said, did anything happen to my voice? He said, oh, no. We knew you were a singer. And we took special care of your voice box now. Your voice is fine. Nothing happened to your voice. We took very care of your voice. I said, well, if um, my voice is fine, I, I know I'll be okay. 
Never shed a tear. Never shed one tear. My sister says, you never cried. You never did anything. You never said anything like, what the H is going on or how am I going to deal with this? She said, you never said any of that. You asked the doctors, five doctors, did anything happen to your voice? And then you started to sing just to make sure that nothing had happened to your voice. So my sister in home, little sweet way, she said, okay, doctors, we can leave now. So she's singing, she'll be fine. And my sister ushered the doctors out of the room. She said, we could hear you all the way down the hallway. You were just singing and singing loud. I can still shine. Song that Ashford Simpson wrote me for a movie called Made to Order. And I don't know where the song came from, but I just started singing. So I knew then. I said, well, I think I spoke to Lou a couple of hours after that. I said, well, they told me what happened. He said, oh, Mayor, they did? I said, yeah. I said, but I think I'll be okay if I can walk in prosthetics. He said, then you're going to sing, aren't you? I said, oh, yeah, I guess I will sing. I guess I will sing. If that's what we need to do, I, <laughs> I guess I will sing. I said, nothing happened to my voice. Uncle Lou, nothing happened to my voice. He said, I know. He said, that's why I know you're going to sing. So that, that, was, that was the hospital drama. When you reflect back on that moment, obviously you sung I assume hundreds or maybe thousands of songs over your career. Why was, in hindsight, why was that the one that you went to? I have no idea. You know, things can come up in your spirit that you've done years and years and years and years ago. I did that in a movie in 1987 called Made to Order. I remember that one. Yeah, and Nick and Val wrote that for me. You know, I called them and said, we need a song. And Nick, Nick was the lyricist and Valerie did the news. She said, well, Mary, let me let you speak to Nick. And um, I don't know why that just came up. You know, things will come up in your, in your spirit when, you, when, the, when they're needed. They will come up in your spirit. That song was needed at that time, so it came up. And when it came up, I just started to sing. Yeah, I mean, the message is clear, right? I can still shine. Yeah, yeah. How much of a, a motivating factor in your ability to get better was the, that knowledge that Lou and the recording studio were waiting for you on the other side? I really, to be honest, I really didn't even think about any of that. I didn't think about any of that. All I thought about was it was a day-to-day thing. You know, it was a day-to-day. You know, once I, I did therapy, I'd get up and I'd do my therapy. I'd come back. I'd get a massage. I would eat. I would talk. I would go to bed. I mean, it was like a daily thing. I didn't think about things like that. I really, really didn't. I, once, once you put yourself, once you put your hands in the hands of one who stilled the water, you don't worry about anything like that. I didn't, I didn't worry about anything. I wasn't really concerned about anything. But I did know that it was going to work out wherever it was. So a moment like that, when something like that happens, it it doesn't test your faith at all? Of course it tests my faith. I'm not made of stone, you know, but I stood on my faith. You know, I stood, I'm a very, I'm a woman of faith. You know, of course it tested your faith, you know, it's an okay. But I knew not to murmur and complain. It was not a godly thing to murmur and complain. That's why the children of Israel all died out. They didn't get into the promised land. They died out because they murmured and they complained. But I knew not to murmur and complain. Murmuring and complaining doesn't get you anywhere. But I knew that if I would stand on my faith, on what I was raised to believe, that God was in control, I didn't have anything to worry about. And I stood on that. And I still stand on that. And I will continue to stand on that until I close my eyes for the last time in this life. Why did it take 27 years for you to... Put out a new record. I have no idea. 
as Mary Clayton. We did win a, gra- win a Grammy for uh, the 20 Feet from Stardom album. Did you know that, the soundtrack? Yeah, yeah, of course. So it didn't. It, it took Mary Clayton, uh, for Mary Clayton to do uh, a single album, yeah. But we did do an album in 2013 or 14 that got us a Grammy. So um, I had always been musically uh, busy. I was just busy doing other folks' projects (laughs) and a little bit of my own project, you know. But I have no idea why it took that long. So many different things that you do, you know. You you do a whole lot of different projects. A whole lot of things happen in life. You have I have children. I have two sons. I have four grandchildren. You know, my life isn't just music. My life is my family and my children and my grandchildren. That's life to me. Music is secondary. Families first have always been first in my life. Matter of fact, today is today is my late husband's birthday. Today, when I said, "Oh my God, I have to do an interview today," oh, no. <laughs> I said, "Oh my God, October 11th, Curtis's birthday." Let's talk about Curtis a little bit then. I know the two of you met when you were very young on tour. I was working with Ray Charles. I was a Raylette, and he was Ray's conductor. We met. Uh, we became very good friends. Uh, he asked my parents if he could date me after we came off of the front off of the first tour. We dated for almost two and a half years, and we were married in Astrodome, in Houston, Texas, in 1970. Mm-hmm. We're doing a movie called Brewster McLeod, and look, I couldn't leave. So um, Lou said, "You're gonna be happy about this later." I said, "But I need to get married in the church." He says, "Well, you can do that when you get home, but you need to do this right now." And uh, we got married in Astrodome. Mm-hmm. We were married 32 years. How does that work in the in the Astrodome? How, how what what is what is that ceremony like? What do you mean? What is it like? You stand on a base and you get married <laughs> with the rest of the crew. What do you mean? What is it like? Well, I mean, obviously, it's you know, I, it's different in a lot of ways from getting married in a church. No, you put on your best. You put on your best dress or your best best outfit, and you stand with a, with your pastor, or a pastor, a great pastor. My husband was from Houston, Texas. Astrodome is in Houston, Texas, so he was home. So his pastor married us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he married us, and it was wonderful. And then when I came, you know, when we got home, um, we got we had a, a ceremony in a church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we were married until he um, made his transition several years ago. And uh, that was uh, the story. But Curtis um, was a brilliant musician. He had his doctorate in music. And uh, he was a brilliant, really a brilliant man, a lovely, kind, sweet gentleman, great father, and a wonderful husband. We were working on um, Song for You. Lou suggested that I do Song for You for this new project. And I, uh, Uncle Lou, you sure? He said, oh, yeah, I think it'll be great. He said, you know, it was you and Curtis' song. I said, yeah, I know. So um, we did the song, and Terry did a fantastic track of it. I put the vocal on. We, you know, we didn't speak anymore about it. We went on to the next song. And about a month later, Lou calls my son and said, Kevin, I'm sending this song that I want Mary to hear, but I need you to be there with her when she listens to it. It's important that you're right there with her when she listens to it. So Kevin comes, he brings the song, he puts it, go to the music room, we play it. And uh, we're listening to the song, and the solo comes in, and I'm thinking he had put a guitar, Terry put a guitar or some other kind of instrument as the solo, because that was Curtis's spot where he played his solo on the saxophone. Well, 
to, unbeknownst to me, they had taken the Curtis's solo from my 1971 album, the Mary Clayton album, and dropped the same solo into Beautiful Scars. <laughs> song for you. So when he when they dropped they dropped the solo and beautiful scars, and uh, this particular project and song for you, we didn't know anything about it. So when it, when they played it, my heart just dropped to hear that beautiful solo of Curtis in in uh, in song for you. It must be also a surreal experience revisiting a song. A night it's a nice bookend. Uh, I guess at least in terms of the release dates, exactly 50 years between those two. Isn't that something? That is really something. Yeah. I, didn't even, I didn't even think about that. I didn't think about it until we were doing an interview for the Grammys about a month ago, and the interviewee said, well, Mary, you and Lou have known each other for about 50 years. I said, what? Lou grabbed his heart. He said, oh, my Lord. He said, and he looked at me, and he, he says, oh, Mary. I said, oh, Lou. <laughs> Yeah, that was really something. Yeah, it's been it was fifty years, wasn't it? Wow. Mm. Mm. I know, as we spoke about before, when it comes time to performing live, you know, you have to sit with your own music for a little while. When you re-recorded that song, did you revisit the original? No, I didn't. I wiped that totally out of my head, you know, and I just did it from my heart. My heart sung that song. I didn't sing it. My heart sung it. And of course, you know, I thought about my husband. And uh, so many times we would be doing the set list for different jobs that we were doing or different concerts we were doing. And he would always say, now, you know, you have to sing my song, baby. And I would, I would, invert, I, I would, you know, just say, just to mess with him, I'd say, what song? <laughs> We'd laugh. He, he knew it was a song for you. I knew it was a song for you. I said, where are you going to place it? He said, I'll nestle it in there somewhere. He said, just watch me. Because he was always musical director. Just, just watch me. He said, it'll be great. He said, wherever I put it, it's going to be wonderful. So enjoy, burn, have a good time. And we'd have a prayer, and we'd just go out to do the song. We'd go out to do the set, you know. But he would always want me to do his song, so much so that when he got ill, doing his illness, he made me write a list of things to do, of course. And he says to me, he says, now, now baby, you know, if anything happens, he said, you know, we have to think about things like this. He said, you know, death marries is a part of life. I said, Curtis, I don't want to hear that. He said, but it is. He said, and if anything happened, you got to sing my song. I said, oh, okay. So I wrote it down, you know. And sure enough, when he made his transition at his services, I, had, I promised him I would sing that song. So I had to get up and sing a song for you. Now, I, that, was an out of body, that was an out-of-body experience there. That was a total out-of-body experience. But I had promised him that's what I was going to do. So that's what I did. You have such a deep connection to a particular song. And when you associate that song so closely to somebody who you were so close to and, and who you lost, are you channeling all of those feelings when the time comes to sing to sing it again? No. <laughs> I, <don't>. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. You know, it's according to what has gone on through the day. You know, what um, what what has happened during the day uh what myself and my, my musical director have talked about. What do we talk about doing dinner? What do we talk about in the dressing room? What, I, I don't really, I don't go back and do the song the same, I don't do the song the same way every time. I don't do any of my songs the same way every time. Yeah, the lyrics are the same, but the feel of the song, they're always different to me. 
It's a different feeling. It's according to where your spirit is during that day. It's how you feel inside. It's how you portray a song. Because to me, singing is like acting. And, you know, in my acting career, that's my son said, Mom, just take it. I was a little nervous about something I was doing, and I said, Kevin, how am I going to do this? This, this, how am I going to do this part of this film? How am I going to get? He said, Mom, just treat it because he studied with Strasburg. He said, Mom, just treat it. He did. He said, Mom, just treat it like it's you know, like it's the first verse of a song. He said, You know, he said, I said, Oh, Kevin, that's good. He said, Just treat it like you're singing the first or second verse of a song, and that's the way I treat music. You know, I treat it just like it's. You know, act the way I treat treated acting is the way I treat a song. You know, it's according to what happens during the day, or how I'm feeling. But they're never always the same. I never sing a song the same. It would get too boring to sing a song the same all the time. It's always a different feel. I haven't actually heard you speak too much about your your acting career in the past. Was that something that you were actively pursuing, or were you approached? Well. I was basically approached. That was the furthest thing from my mind. You know, I, I knew that I could act. I mean, I was, I, I did that every night. I would sing a song, I was acting. Anytime you sing a song, you're acting. You're playing a role, you know? So I was approached. They always, they always called me, made to order. I was in New York, and the producer called, called my husband's mother, so we'd like to speak to Mary Clayton. Is this a number for her? And Mother said, oh, no, honey, she's in New York. You have to call her in New York. Who are? Who is this? She said, well, we're producers of this movie, and we'd like for Mary to, to, to read for it. She said, oh, honey, here's the number. Call her. She's in New York. She's at the place in New York. So they called me and said, this is uh, Holly Sloan, and um, we're doing, doing a little film called Made to Order, and we'd love for you to read, put you on tape for this film. We think you'd be great for this. I said, Really? Oh, yes, we've seen you sing, and we just know that, you know, you'll be great for this. I said, well, I'm, I'm not an actress. They said, no, that's what we want. We don't want you to be an actress. We just want you to be you. We want you to be your own little sassy self. I said, ah. So they said, we'll fly you back in. We'll fly you in, and if you have to go back, we'll fly you back out. So I came in, and they put me on tape. And the next week, they called and they said, you've got the role if you want it. We'll do it. We'll take care of all the particulars with your manager. We'd love to have you. I said, oh, God, here we go. I told my husband, he says, well, maybe this is, some, this is something you need to do, Mary. I said, maybe it is. He says, get the script. He said, and come home. I said, I have to fly back. I just came back out here. He said, come home because you need to practice. You can practice there in New York with Annie. He says, but you need to come home and you need to practice. You need to know every." inch of the script. You need to know everybody's part, not only your part. You have to know everybody's part. But it's just, so I came home, and I rehearsed, and I did what I needed to do, but they needed a song. So they came to me and asked for a song, and I immediately called Nick and Val. And in two weeks, they had written me a song. So that, you know, that, it, 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 it chose me. I didn't, chose, I didn't choose the movie. The movie chose me. Another time, right after that, after I got through with the film, maybe a year later, and during the same time, I had just I just did um, Dirty Dancing, <laughs> and Dirty Dancing was skyrocketing. It was just going to the nth degree. I mean, it stayed on the charts forever. They said, Mary, we need to go on tour, and you need to go. So I said, well, how long is the tour? They said, oh, about four, maybe five months. I said, oh, no, honey, I'm not going to be going with my husband. Oh, he can come out. We'll send for Curtis to come out to visit or whatever, but we need to have you on this tour. So 
right before I did that tour, there was a um, friend of mine that said, you know what, matter of fact, he was my manager. So Ron said, you know what, Mayor? He said, they're they're doing, they they need an artist uh, for Cagney and Lacey. He said, you could play a part of the police detective, couldn't you? I said, well, yeah. He said, no, you have to go through some training. He says, but you know Tyne, you know Tyne, Tyne Daly. I said, yes, I know Tyne. Oh, he said, well, call Tyne. But they need you to come read for the part. I read for the part. They called me within the next four or five days. They said, oh, we'd love to have you. You know, the producer, Barney Rosenswag, said, hey, we'd love to have you, Mary. This is going to be such fun. I said, oh, Lord, Curtis, here we go again. He said, Mary, you can do this. <laughs> My son said, Mom, I'll come. I'll go over your part with you, but you're going to be good. It's going to be great. And it was. So I never chose the roles. They just sort of chose me. In life, I don't speak to too many people who have been started doing what they're still doing professionally at a at such a young age so obviously you know you've you've always known you were a great singer it must have been thrilling to kind of step outside of your comfort zone for a bit and, and try something completely different oh it was wonderful it was wonderful and uh my partner when i was doing Cagney and Lacey was this guy called um marty cove but his his uh his name on the set was Specky. <laughs> Mike Cole was my partner, and we became really good friends. And Tyne and I were already good friends. So we'd visit each other's dressing room, and we'd just kind of hang out. And I'd ask Tyne, Tyne, am I, am I reading this right? She said, come out to my trailer. We'll, we'll, have, we'll, we'll have a talk. We'll have lunch, and I'll, I'll tell you how you need to do it. But they were very helpful. They were very lovely. The producer was wonderful. You know, Barney was just incredible. And the writers were really, really great. Plus, they were Rolling Stones fans, so that helped a lot. <laughs> that helped a lot, you know. They, they wanted to always ask me questions about, well, Mary, well, then how did you meet, how did you... How did you get to do uh, Give Me Shelter and yada, yada, yada? I said, oh, Lord. Do I still can't tell this story once. I'm not going to tell it again. It must be so strange that, you know, I know that that was one night of recording and, and, and three takes for you. It, it it must be strange having to tell that story over and over again, given, you know, what a just a fraction of your, your career it was. Can you believe one day here in my home, Los Angeles, that I had to tell that story 30 times. How did that happen? I had interviews. Well, there was a moderator, and I had interviews 15 minutes apiece when the album first hit. 15 minutes. They all got 15 minutes. I talked from 7 in the morning. It was back east until 7, 8, 9, 10, until about 10 or 10.30 that morning. 15 minutes apiece. I could not believe it. And uh, they all wanted to know, you know, I said, I know you guys saw the movie Made to Order, didn't you? I mean, uh, uh, 20 Feet from Stardom. Oh, yes. we. I said, well, the maybe you should go back and see it because it, it tells you the story. <laughs> so Carmen says, Mary, you can't just do that. I said, I can do whatever I want to do. She said, no, you can't. <laughs> did you tell them, Mary? She said, did you tell them, Mary, to go look at the movie? <laughs> I said, I told one person that. <laughs> you just used the audio from the movie for your interview. Yeah, yeah. I should really just use that and put it on the phone when, you know. <laughs> When I get ready to tell this story, oh my God, can you imagine saying that so many times? But it was it was cool because they needed to know these things. In my research, I heard you listen, you tell it a few times, and 
I'm not going to make you tell it again, but I do want to ask one of the one of the most striking things about that performance, and and I know you, you've spoken a bit about this, is the the way your voice cracks, your your voice breaks a a, a bit in there. It, my voice cracked in tune. Can you? I couldn't, I couldn't even believe that. The thing that's always stuck with me is you're an amazing singer, and you know these days when we listen to a lot of pop music, so much of it is just sort of is auto tuned and 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 polished, and there's a there's a vulnerability and 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 a realness in that track, and it, it's something that you know I think in a normal recording process maybe a lesser producer might have made you re-record but is is there something in that in that performance that stuck with you in that kind of that rawness and and vulnerability that you you put on the track first of all Brian, <laughs> it was late it was late i did not want to go that's number one i did not want to go jagnichi called and uh, you know my husband took the phone he said hey man what are you why are you calling mary so late no, he said, well, man, why are you calling her so late? He said, man, we just need Mary. That's the way he talked. Mary, we just need Mary for about 35 minutes. Curtis should know she can come in and we'll wipe it out. So he said, man, it's late. You know, I don't know what you're going to get out of her, but I'm going to send her. And she's got to be back in 40 minutes, you know, 40 minutes to an hour. She's, she's very back. pregnant. He said, if not, yeah, I was very pregnant. So I go to the studio and... You know, we didn't waste any time. You know, I met the guys. You know, I said, okay, what do you want me to sing? I said, it's late, and I need to get back to my warm spot. You know, so they showed me what I needed to sing. I sung it, I, I, you know, and but when he told me, when Keith told me, you know, I want you to sing the rape and the murder. I said, boy, I, rape, I'm not saying nothing about rape and murder. What has that got to do with the song? He says, well, and he gave me the gist of what the song was about. I said, ah. And then I started thinking in my heart about everything that the world was going through. We had the Vietnam War going on. We had we had just lost Dr. King, you know. We had all kind of racial stuff going on. We had uh, so many of our young men were being killed, you know, uh, in Vietnam and in the streets here and uh, in our city and all over the world, you know. And it was just a lot of things going on. So I really had to call on my ancestors to help me, to help me, really, to help me with that song. And when I realized what I was singing about, it just hit me, and I went to another place. I don't know where I went, but I went to another place when I was singing that that, that war children's just a shot away and rape murder's just a shot away. You know, if you keep on doing what you're, gonna, you're doing, this is what's going to happen. You, you, you're going to be, it's, it's going to be just a shot away, and this is what's going to happen. So I, I went to a total different, as they call it, different sphere, and um, and um, and then I came back to myself, but I was somewhere else singing that song, you know, because I really thought about, I really thought about what had trans what was transpiring in our world, and it really hurt me. And just so happened it was hurting me in that situation when I was recording that song, you know. But I, I tell you, and then when I heard the playback, I heard it on my ears. I didn't even go in behind the booth to even listen. I was waving goodbye. I said, I'll give you one more for safety, and that's it. And I was waving goodbye, and they was hooting and hollering, and I was waving by. And I was out, and I was gone. Next thing I know, one of the biggest records of the universe. That feeling of being transported, is that something that had happened before or since? Yeah, there, there are several songs that I have recorded, and um, sometimes that happens to me on stage, you know. It's according to what's going on in the world. You know, you can't be an artist and not feel what's going on in the world. You can't. There's no way... That you, you can't be an artist and not feel what's going on in the world right today. 
you know, uh, what, what's going on in the world. It's sad. It's pitiful. It's pathetic, you know, um, and, and it's hard to believe, you know. I, I speak to several people uh, during the day, two people in particular that I speak to during the day. There's always something said about, well, this happened or that happened, and uh, did you hear the news? I said, no, I'm not watching the news anymore. Anything I need to know, Carmen will Carmen will tell me. You know, <laughs> one of the, my son will tell me. He I don't think he watches the news anymore. My attorney will call me and tell me well, this is what's happening, or this is what you need to look out for. Or, you, need to, you need to bump up on food. You need to get a bunch of uh, things in the freezer, or you got to you know call. Um, Prime or Amazon and get all the toiletries and everything that you need because we don't know what's going to go down, you know, so just make sure that everything is is on point. But, um, yeah, I mean, you can't be an artist and not feel what's going on in the world. It doesn't work like that, honey. And I'm a very sensitive, I'm sensitive, you know. I feel what's going on in the world, you know. I knew, I know that if my stomach... If something is going on in my solar plexus and my stomach is feeling weird or something is feeling strange, I know something is going on somewhere. And until I find out what it is, I'm not at peace in my spirit. See? See, and when you're at peace in your spirit, you can relax. But when I'm like kind of things are feeling a little weird and you can't, can't, you wake up and you can't really get it together. Had a good night. You've had, you've had a good night's sleep, but you can't seem to get your day together. You can't get started. You can't get the breakfast together, and you can't do this, and you, you're kind of all over the place. Something is stirring somewhere, and until I can find out what it is, I don't, I don't get any peace. So I'm, I'm very nosy. I want to know what's going on. <laughs> we talked about that sort of that book ending of, of recording that song 50 years later. Um, you know, obviously there's, I don't know if frustration is the right word, but in realizing that, you know, obviously some things have gotten better over the past 50 years and other things haven't. And certainly a lot of these issues feel cyclical. The same issues we had 50 years ago are the same issues yeah. we have now. That's, How about that's, that? It's much more succinct. Identical. The identical things that happened 50 years ago are the same things that are happening now, but worse. And it's blatant. It's right in your face. You know, it's right in your face. I'm going to shoot you dead, and I'm going to be looking at you and do it. You walk away from me, or you, you run, and I'm going to shoot you in your back. Yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going. Yeah, and this is what, what I'm going to do. You know, it's, it, now it's just gotten, it's gotten worse. You know, it's just real blatant, the same identical things. That's what's so sad about it. It is something that you tackle a bit on the, the final track in a conversation with your granddaughter where she expresses those fears or, or frustrations about um, her generation. Um, is there anything that, that, that gives you hope that things will get better? Well, the only thing that gives me hope is having faith in God. Because this is his world. Everybody thinks they're running things. You know, the Senate thinks they're running things. And the government thinks they're running things. But what they don't understand is that they're not in charge. (laughs) They may think they're in charge, but they're really not in charge. This is God's world. He made it, and he can make it disband if he wants to. This is his world. You know, we're uh, we're just living in it. That's the way I feel. You know, I, I don't, you know, I, hopes of things getting better. Hmm. All I can say is that 
we'll see. Let's just pray that things get better. But it's real ugly right now. It's very, very ugly. Everybody's trying to make it seem like, oh, everything is getting better. Everything is wonderful. Oh, it's going to be great. Yeah, things are getting better. But for how long are they going to be better? 